J.P. Morgan was a robber baron in the Gilded Age of the United States. You might know him through the bank that still bears his name. But if you lived in the late 19th century, you'd know J.P. Morgan for a lot more. Owner of U.S. Steel or General Electric or AT&T. Robber barons grow rich through monopolizing. Step one, buy companies. Step two, merge them. Step three, profit. Repeat. We Americans created an economy where wealth begets wealth, and J.P. Morgan had all the tools of the trade for that one. But I came to know about J.P. Morgan in my junior year of seminary. All first years were invited to a seminar to learn about the church pension fund, something I had not heard of up to that point. My um, major plans for retirement as a 25-year-old included living in my sister's basement forever. (laughs) So you cannot imagine the level of shock I felt as I sat and learned that in the early 1900s, a pension fund was established for retired clergy and their widows, who had lived until then in just terrible poverty. I learned that if I died during my career, my spouse would receive a benefit for the rest of my expected working years, and my children too, and so on. It's kind of an incredible thing, actually, particularly in a world like ours where these goals of caring for the widowed and the aging are cut for the bottom line. At that seminar, I learned that all this happened because of J.P. Morgan, a robber baron in the Gilded Age who also happened to be Episcopalian. That gives you pause, doesn't it? It does me. A monopolizing, union-stomping, cutthroat businessman who single-handedly controlled Wall Street for the better part of his life. And you think of him next to the tens of thousands sweet old tottering priests out there who spent their life's efforts caring for their struggling churches and now have something more than social security to float them from month to month, maybe something that's not their sister's basement. As the parable says today, an unscrupulous man making friends with people like me through dishonest wealth. This is the most confounding parable that Jesus teaches, actually. Did you catch the story? The setting is a world not too different from ours. A very rich and powerful man has bought up all of these smaller farms. And he's wealthy enough to have a manager run them so he can be off, you know, buying more farms. The text says that this manager, though, is squandering his boss's wealth, getting a little loose with the accounting, skimming a few extra jugs of olive oil off the top. He gets caught, and the boss is going to fire him as soon as he closes the books. The manager panics. He knows he is a man not fit for much, too soft to work, too proud to beg, He decides to go through the books and begin forgiving the debts of his boss's debtors. He has no business doing this. But he thinks to himself that it will get him friends, 
when he loses everything that he has. Maybe the most wild note of this story is the very end when the boss sees what the manager did and commends him for dealing with the debtors so shrewdly. Isn't it the strangest parable? Coming, first of all, from the mouth of a man we call sinless, here he is, sure sounding like he commends dishonesty. And when we remember that the boss in Jesus' parables almost always symbolizes God, what do you do with the boss's outright commendation? I'll remind you a little bit of what I said last week. Jesus' parables are meant to make you feel this way, to shake you up. When you hear them, if you do not feel a little offended, like somewhat shocked and confused, odds are you might have been making a grocery list in your head while the gospel was being read. These are not timeless Zen koans. This is Jesus' most famously upsetting one, and there are about as many different opinions on it as, uh, on its meaning as there are biblical interpreters, but since you're here with me this morning, here's mine. The world we made works on merit. We have balanced budgets, balanced checkbooks, we have reciprocity in our relationships. We know what's mine and yours. The first phrase kids learn in preschool is, it's not fair, or maybe more simply put, mine. We are talliers, deep down, scorekeepers. The debt interest builds and builds. Our society doles out points for upright positions, successful marriages, respectful children, good jobs. I think Jesus shocks us with this parable because grace in our scorekeeping world is shocking. And maybe the point he's trying to make is that it breaks in even with the dishonest and the imperfect and the desperate. That starts to sound like him, actually. Like the teaching of a rabbi who clearly wants to wipe out every system we make that opposes grace, but who will also patiently see that grace leaking in, not all at once, in imperfect lives like ours. Grace does not come naturally to us. It was only once the manager became desperate that he began to look at the debtors around him and do what he could to ease their burdens. He did it for himself, but did that change the good that was done? Maybe Jesus wants us to dig a little deeper inside and ask if our motives are ever truly pure. Doesn't looking busy make us seem good and right in the eyes of the world? Doesn't serving create some peace in ourselves? Doesn't giving fill you with a sense of righteous purpose worth more than what you gave? Maybe this is a parable about how grace can work for those of us still caught up in our scorekeeping. How it bubbles up for folks 
not fit for much else other than that destructive pattern that keeps us from the life God intends. Jesus' stories confuse and alarm us because they're asking for something we do not want to give, things that are offensive to us. A really easy example of this was the recent forgiveness of student loan debt in our nation. You can make all sorts of arguments about the potential harm there done to the economy, but I only heard arguments like that from, like, writers. From the people I knew on social media, I heard something very simple. A bunch of folks who had paid off their loans themselves, who believed that since they had done so, everyone else should too. It's not fair. I do not know what the life of grace looks like entirely, but I am convinced that it is fundamentally not fair. And I know it keeps breaking in, and that you'll find it in the very last person that you expect, maybe a robber baron, maybe in you at your most desperate when the wheat and the oil and the points you've been tallying all along are wiped away in an instant and you see for the first time that you are a conduit to a different kind of life. 